0: previously on storyological <laughs> people aren't as nice as they used to be that's for sure
1: i am trying to set some standards for the show and
0: the only standard i have is would flannery o'connor shoot you in the chest in the story <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is storyological a podcast about amazing stories
0: that we kind of like <laughs> i'm chris camerood
1: and i'm eg kosh the first story I picked for us to discuss is Union by Tamsin Muir. It was in Clark's world um, Christmas last year, so the story is set in a rural village where uh, the crofters who live there have are just taking delivery of some new wives. And wives in this world are grown from genetic splices from plants. These wives have been grown from lichen, and that is new and frankly disturbing for the village. And the the unrest that exists as the wives arrive only grows and grows into discontent and disquiet and until the point at which Simeon, who is the town bully essentially, cracks and decides to shoot them all in the back of the head.
0: I think I think you just skipped his motivation. That's fine. You just paint the man as an unmotivated killer. <laughs> Go for it. I can see how you're gonna you're gonna read Flannery O'Connor. <laughs>
1: Okay, so there are, you know, some disturbing qualities about these women, right? They are strangely passive. They seem to, be, uh, seem to have infected the crop. They seem to be killing the goats. But you're never really quite certain about whether or not it is them or if they just happen to be loitering nearby. So after Simeon dispatches the wives, they bury them out beyond the fields and mark the grave with fluorescent spray, which was, I thought, a very perfect kind of detail and then one day the wives come back and they just slot themselves back into the life of the village and everything seems to be perfectly normal except of course simeon's house which is the site of a giant fight and simeon is gone
0: and also the the holes in the back of their head from where he shot them one small detail and the dull glimmer of the bullets pushing themselves (laughs) out of their brains
1: it says in the story that that'll wash off, right? No one's going to notice.
0: Um, I'm not sure the bullet hole is going to wash <laughs> off. The, the trail of mold they leave in their wake. Yes. <laughs> as you know from the theme of our podcast, mm. you have discussed how you have learned that you actually like horror, just not the, the horror, as in horror movies from the 80s. And we talked about the Gothic before, and this, this story felt very much to me like a southern Gothic story because, like you said, we were in a rural village We have something new and disturbing that that Mm -hmm. has come into town. And it it is sublime. It is terrifying and wonderful. There is a description of the wives in the story. And I'm going to read you this paragraph. It says, Outside the pub and across the street, two of the wives stand in the blue evening shade. Simeon stabs a finger in their direction. They do not chat or relax. They stare, first at each other, then at a crack in the daub house, then at a drying clag of mulch. Then at each other again, their tongues flicker in their mouths. Whoa, what? I know, right? The, the tongues flickering in the mouth. That is that, that little bit, that, just that little so bit so of uncanny, creepy, creepy that, that, is, that is growing.
1: It's so funny you say uncanny because I one of the things I wrote down to talk about was the idea of the uncanny valley that you have in comics and cartoons when you render a human face so close to almost being human but not quite human that it is the very peak of scariness mm. and and that's what these wives are they are so close to being human and yet they this is how they're described when they arrive on the back of a truck right they're described their fingernails are frilled and raised freckles stipple each arm in shades of red and orange
0: the the language of this story it felt as implacable to me as the wives themselves it there's this thing that that i heard from neil gaiman not in person haven't had that pleasure yet um which was no apologies no explanations now i tried to live this way for a while (laughs) I got some. I got some shit done. Out? Don't know how deeply it connected me to other human beings, but I got some shit done. I felt like that was that was that was very present in the story. Mm-hmm. That the story exuded confidence to me, where I didn't need to apologize or explain anything. I learned a lot of a lot of good phrases from this story that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. For example, you have used the word crofter mm-hmm. as though it means something.
1: Yeah. Somebody who lives on a croft, right? So that is like a... What is a croft? It's a...
0: Is that where, why Lara is called Lara Croft?
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a very old style word for somebody who plows the land in the way of a tenant and doesn't own the land.
0: Um, spit the dummy. You lot don't know you're born. These are all things that I looked up and found were, were things in either New Zealand or a couple of words I found were Maori. She absolutely, she just, is, it takes all these words, including like splice and a whole, a whole bunch of words from genetics as well, mm-hmm. puts them in the story, doesn't rightly feel any need to explain what they mean mm-hmm. besides what the characters are going to do to them. For example, there's, there's a discussion about the ministry at one point in this pub. They're talking about what the ministry is going to do. We, we don't need to know what the ministry is. We just need to know how they discuss it, and she gives it to us. And so what it did for me as when I was reading the story, and this language is so implacable, so unexplained, so unapologized, that I never felt distracted from the dream. I only felt challenged to dream harder, to try to imagine the answers to the gaps that she was leaving. So it felt like the story was this this gorgeous puzzle with just enough pieces that I could kind of imagine putting in the missing pieces. But then I would have my own picture. You know, it Mm -hmm. becomes my own personal story that I have pieced together.
1: Absolutely. And I think a lot of the language that you describe, you know, is very New Zealand slash British slash Scottish. I just checked, and that seems to be where uh, Croft comes from, is from Scotland. Um, And so... Whilst I noticed that the language was beautiful, it didn't seem particularly alien to me, but, you know, you're right in the way that she smashes it together with all these kind of biopunk words, and just you just have to catch up. The confidence of this story is such that whatever set of words you're familiar with, whether it's the biopunk, the Maori, the New Zealand, you know, some kind of colonial heritage words, it doesn't matter how much you know, how much you don't know, it just charges on through and expects you to catch up. And because the emotional through line is so powerful, right? This story is just built on fear and it makes you feel scared for pretty much everybody in it, including these terribly scary wives. So that's what I love, right? It it both makes you afraid of them and afraid for them. And that is something that you don't see very often, right? It's that perfect, perfect line that she's walked in creating these terrifying, horrifying women who kind of break this poor village apart with their... um, they're kind of slightly subhuman intellect, it seems like. So one of the thing, one of the ways that she makes them into such a scary idea is that you're never really sure whether they're evil or whether they're simple or whether they're just passive. And they repeat phrases and non sequiturs, first one, and then many joining together to kind of say it in a chorus. We're sorry, auntie. We're sorry, auntie. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I wrote it down that the, the story reminded me of, of Shirley Jackson and Flannery O'Connor and H.P. Lovecraft all mixed together with its with its southern gothicness and its weirdness. And it felt like, right, there's the, the old expression that every story is about someone leaving town or someone coming to town. Yeah. Like in H.P. Lovecraft, a lot of times the story is someone comes to town. So a person goes to a town mm-hmm. and eventually they realize the town is fish people uh and in this story it's like the fish people who are plant people come to town and the plant people are weird Mm -hmm. but the town is also weird and the readers have to come to terms with the weirdness of the town and the growing weirdness of the wives as the town itself has to come to grip with these strangers that have arrived so it it puts us in the position of the strange town like you said where we're wondering about the strange wives the strangers that have come to town have they brought disease are they evil Is the disease just a coincidence? Are the wives just there and easy to blame? Mm
1: -hmm. It becomes Mm -hmm.
0: really difficult because everything is strange for us to know who the monster is.
1: And that's why it makes it such a perfect story for our time. Because I feel like in the media, in politics, we're constantly looking for some monster to blame. Whether it's refugees, whether it's political migrants, whether it's people of different ethnicities. And constantly people are kind of stirring the pot to point fingers in different directions. Yeah for people not benefiting from the video feed, I'm actually stirring a giant pot with my fist.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I have jumped in. I am helping to stir the pot. Earlier, you talked about the emotional through line of the story. And I made a note of the, the importance of Simeon, who is the, the pub winger, who is who he's, he's a person that we kind of read is immediately obviously prejudiced because he's against the wives as soon as they get there. But because he is obviously prejudiced. He is immediately the guy that we can relate to and hold on to as an anchor. Because where our immediate feeling is, okay, if he's against the wives... Maybe I should give them a little time to prove themselves. Mm-hmm. And his emotional through line pulls us through the story up into the point that the, the story helpfully you know, complicates it and gives him a foil. Mm-hmm. And Laura, who's the one person that seems wanting to wait to see about the wives. What I love about Laura and what I, what I would love to talk to you about is like the morality of the story, because because Laura comes through the story as perhaps the one good person because she is willing to give the wives an essence of humanity as as worth not immediately killing. Mm-hmm. And when Simeon is dead and everyone wants to move on and carry on and just have the wives around, it's Laura that's like, wait a minute, the, these, these people that I wanted to give time to, that I wanted to not murder, have now killed someone. And everyone just wants to go back like, it's fine.
1: And Laura's like, but they killed this person yeah she she is the the voice of of the reader in a way of people going no what this is some crazy shit what are you even thinking how can you accept this as the norm
0: yeah yeah you i I feel like though there there will be the voices of the readers who like simeon was a bad guy Mm -hmm. he rounded up the women and shot them (laughs) they came back to life and they killed the bastard yeah awesome
1: sure but not I mean I kind of did feel that cuz he was such a shithead. Exactly. Exactly. But I still feel like you know the the uncertainty and the fear that festers afterwards, right? That it's like by killing by coming back and killing Simeon, they haven't lanced the boil that that of fear that is festering in this village. All they've done is put a put a covering on it and underneath it's still just kind of growing and growing into this giant pus ball of of loathing and you know I wrote I wrote in my notes that this village is so stagnant, right? They they live or they exist in a world where everything is licensed. They have to apply for licenses for wives, for babies, for uh, corn and grain and everything. and And so they're kind of shut in, except that they also make it worse by building themselves a cage of fear so that they can move even less far. And then they lock it with pride. That's what I Oh,
0: That's what, that is, that is perfect. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Oh, that's what I was going to add was that they build this cage out of fear, but what keeps them in it is pride. And that is beautiful. That metaphor is beautiful. And it's why it reminded me of Flannery O'Connor and the Southern Gothic, because both, both the mode of a lot of the Southern Gothic or the Southern grotesque. And this story is that you have small towns, you have, you have people Who How did you put it? You have have stagnant towns, Mm. people that are somehow stuck in the past or afraid of something new, and yet who are proud of that. They they are proud of being stagnant. They are proud of, of their way of life.
1: I have a theory about that kind of pride, which that actually it's a cover for shame, and that when people have that kind of staunch pride in this is what makes us different, this is what makes us who we are, when it's so unmovable or implacable to use your word from earlier that actually it covers this kind of deep doubt about have I made the right choice but you know what I'm just going to double down for tonight's drink I made us martinis with a dash of lime two ounces of Bombay Sapphire and half an ounce of uh, dry martini
0: so my story for this week is the the very contemporary a good man is hard to find by Flannery O'Connor from 1953, which which I was so reminded of reading uh, Tamson's story that I thought let's let's do it let's do it let's let's slam together actual Southern Gothic that is more than 60 years old with Tamson's story yeah. and see what happens. Uh, so yeah, a brief summary of this story that is 63 years old. Are you ready for this? Okay, grandmother doesn't want to go to Florida. Her son Bailey and his wife and children do want to go to Florida. We're in 1950s Atlanta, Georgia, deep South US. And I'm just going to read to you the first paragraph of this story.
1: That is a good way to situate us.
0: The grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. She wanted to visit some of her connections in East Tennessee, and she was seizing at every chance to change Bailey's mind. Bailey was the son she lived with, her only boy. He was sitting on the edge of his chair at the table, bent over the orange sports section of the journal, now look here, Bailey, she said. See here, read this. And she stood with one hand on her thin hip and the other rattling the newspaper at his bald head. Here this fellow that calls himself the misfit is a loose from the federal pen and headed toward Florida. And you read here what it says he did to these people. Just you read it. I wouldn't take my children in any direction with a criminal like that a loose in it. I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did.
1: I love how your accent got way more southern then towards the end of that paragraph. You're like, "What? Oh, you oh. In that character?" Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, I am in that character. That character is very familiar to me. So, so you have you have them at the kitchen table. You've got her rattling the newspaper. You've got her you got her saying to Bailey, "You know, I wouldn't take my children in the same direction as a criminal." And that and that she couldn't answer to her conscience. You've got you've got a hero refusing the call to adventure. You've got her trying to steer her life and everyone else's life back to the past, back to her old connections in East Tennessee. You've got the misfit, who is basically a gun set upon the mantelpiece, ready to go off at some point in the story. And then at the end of the paragraph, you've got the specter of a theme coming in, because you have her referencing her conscience, and this idea of morality and good and evil that's going to become a big part of the story is right there dropped in at the end of the first paragraph the whole story just
1: bam i, I want to get into that but i want you to summarize the rest of the story for our readers first
0: okay yeah yeah okay that's a hell of a paragraph uh, and then in the second paragraph,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no we're not going through this paragraph by paragraph <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, right. And then, so what happens after that is we, we have a good old-fashioned American road trip where where they stop for, for food along the way. They talk about the site. Uh, the only thing that really different that happens along the way is one, there seem to be a lot of conversations about the past and present. Mm-hmm. And there seem to be a lot of conversations about what it means to be nice and or good. And uh, eventually, the grandmother remembering this wonderful plantation from her childhood, wants, wants them to, to go off-road down this old dusty track towards the plantation and see it. And of course, as they, they go down this track and end up, as you do in, in a kind of gothic story like this, you end up kind of in the heart of the unknown, uh, basically in the middle of nowhere with no one for company except death.
1: That's true. And then if I may summarize the end, uh, the misfit turns up Saves them from a horrible car accident and then kills them all one by one.
0: Well he didn't he didn't save them from the horrible accident. They survived the accident by themselves. Unless you mean he saved them from the the, the horribleness of living their life. Uh, in which case. And, and I, that I is I still very, might.
1: very true, right? That uh, that is what I want to get into because
0: Okay, yeah, let's let's get straight into it. Everybody understand what this story is about. <laughs> Good. Okay. Let's go.
1: The family that the grandmother hectors into following her every whim is just awful every single one of them is like badges each other they're horribly judgmental they're mean to each other they don't listen to each other they're just this unpleasant group of people who frankly by the end of it i had more sympathy with the misfit this criminal who was kind of mistreated by justice and ended up feeling like he had to shoot the grandmother because she'd recognized him Much more than I did with these kids, or the wife, or the son, or the awful, awful old lady.
0: Okay, wow. Okay. So, number one. You feel like the misfit had suffered a miscarriage of justice.
1: I believed him when he said that he thought he had.
0: Okay. Uh, Readers, let's take a moment. (laughs) Grandmother who has committed no crime, other than perhaps being an old woman stuck too much in the past, where she is a kind of racist, superficial...
1: Awful, awful Uh, person.
0: Um... A little bit awful. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. Um, you don't uh, curry her any favor. Uh-huh. The guy who orders murder and shoots someone in the chest, you're like, you know what? You know, I'm going to trust him. You know, the way he described things, that, that seems about right to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and obviously this you know my values in literature are very different to my values in life and i think that this story speaks to that thing that holly black says where you will empathize or you will forgive a character more for uh murdering somebody than you will for not tipping their waitress right
0: yeah i, I have that paragraph literally written <laughs> down in my notes and i think what i've then written down after that is I think in and of itself, that is part of this story about challenging your own sense of morality, both in life and in a story, whether or not you cheer the grandmother's death at the end, whether or not you were hoping somebody might have died in the car crash, perhaps the grandmother, um, whether or not you can see the people in the story who die Mm. as having been deserving of life, or whether you feel like, yeah, they got what they deserved.
1: I went through a a huge kind of emotional upheaval in the second time I read this story. So the first time I read it, I very much kind of felt what you just said. Right? I wanted them to, I was not sad when they died. The children even are awful, right? They've already absorbed this incredibly judgmental attitude from the grandmother. And I, like, I really,
0: I really want to ask you, like, what, what do the children do?
1: Okay, that is judgmental, right? Specifically what they do is they say, They are described as being gleeful at having been in an accident and then horribly sad that nobody died. Were they horribly like, yeah,
0: like I, so I think this is amazing because I think like the second time I read it too, I was reading from my own moral sense and checking my judgment and thinking, I don't know if I was eight years old and I survived an accident, I can see how in one way I would just be like, Wow.
1: Wow. We've been in a, like, you know, like but my,
0: my, my young brain would have been blown. Like this can, was amazing. We were in an accident. Go ahead.
1: No, I, I get that. But I think that by, by talking about uh, Jane Starr's disappointment that nobody died, I feel like Flannery is trying to point out to us that they, that they are not, you know, delightful young children who, who deserve our hearts and, and our warmth. At the beginning, John Wesley says, can we drive fast through Georgia so we don't have to look at it none? And you just say, again, that judgment is so, so powerful coming through. So the second time reading it, something, you know, I, I was suddenly able to see beyond this awfulness of the people and something cracked the story open for me. And that was the parrot shirt that Bailey was wearing. Okay, so... It describes, it just mentions offhand that Bailey is wearing this parrot shirt as he's taken in the woods to be shot by one of the misfits' accomplices. And then the accomplice comes back, bringing the shirt. And the grandma can't quite put her finger on what it reminds her of. And I'm like, it's your son's shirt. Why don't you know what it's reminding you of? And I just thought, right, this is the whole crux of the story. This family does not see each other and they are just playing out roles in each other's lives without any kind of vision or understanding or empathy of, of who the others are as real human beings. And it was so desperately sad.
0: To, to me, that moment in the story was one of those kind of shards of mystery of like, what does it remind her of? I don't know. What were your feelings about the grandmother ultimately? Like, were there... Were there things you could recognize in yourself, things that you found endearing about her? Because I wrote down a list, mm-hmm. but the second time I read it, about well, all the the moments <laughs> that, that I was like, no, no, I see who this person is. I see them as a human being. I, mm-hmm. I see who they are.
1: I, I ended up feeling like the grandma and pretty much all of the people in this story are all playing the roles that either the family or society has assigned to them. And they're playing them like automata like they have no choice in what they do or how they live and and that is terribly sad i really wanted them to take a moment to take stock and look at who they were and what they did and i think that (laughs) by the awful murders that happen at the end of the story that's what flannery is trying to tell us
0: wait what is she trying to tell us
1: that we, that we are responsible for taking a moment to look at how we live our lives and not just taking on the roles that are assigned to us by other people.
0: Yeah, I think I think she is definitely wanting us to take a look at how, our, how we live our lives. I think she's also forcing us to take a look again at these people. Because I think one way of reading the story absolutely is that these people are just playing roles and that it's mm-hmm. tragically sad. I think, though, that because we are in the grandmother's point of view mm. so deeply that there is a danger in reading the way the characters are seen by her as who the characters are because for example Bailey's wife is only referred to as the mother of the children because sure. that's all that she is to the grandmother and yet she's also described as wearing slacks and having a kerchief, tie- kerchief tied in her hair so that to me immediately like in contrast with the grandmother who's wearing like an old straw sailor hat and this this very old style navy blue dress the mother of the children the wife is a much more modern woman than the grandmother and the only the role if she's playing a role is the role of a contemporary woman dressing in contemporary fashion with a much different outlook on life than the grandmother and for the grandmother that's scary and one of the things that i noted in my list was how scared the grandmother was and going back to what you said about in Tamsin's story about pride covering up that festering doubt. Mm. And that is in the grandmother to me, because there was so much fear, her fear uh, of being left behind. At the beginning of the story, one of the, the daughter, June Starr, says, not for a million dollars you're going to stay in this house, and we go to Florida. You're too afraid of missing out on something. <laughs> and and then the next day when they go, the grandmother's the first in the car, yeah,
1: because she can't... A box that looks like a hippo's head. Yeah, yeah, with a crazy
0: hatbox. She is afraid of being left behind. And she's then afraid of cops hiding behind the billboards. Mm. She's she's stuck between not wanting to go on to a place she doesn't want to go, but afraid to be left behind. And that suddenly struck me as like now imagining the grandmother as somebody who raised her boy in a certain way, but he's married a different kind of woman Mm -hmm. than his mother. And feeling like this family and time is moving away from her. And, and been, she wants to hold on to it.
1: Yeah, it speaks to the kind of fear that people have as they get older, that the times are moving on beyond them and past them and faster than they can really understand. And and, and absolutely, now you've now you've kind of highlighted her fear. That does make me feel a little more empathy for her. But, you know, when I first read this story I felt like Flannery O'Connor really understands people, but I'm not sure she likes any of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. the The story is is very drained of sentiment. Like I wrote down that is like um, yeah. is a writer content to strip her characters to the bone and rattle them out, daring us to empathize with them. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: There's one quote from the grandmother. So it's talking about how she's perfectly decked out in ancient in her old-fashioned clothes. And it says, in case of an accident, anyone seeing her dead on the highway would know at once she was a lady. And I thought immediately, oh my God, this story is in conversation with Austen, right? It is a a black comedy of manners. That's what it's really skewering.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those, that particular skewering is something very, very bright in Flannery O'Connor. Very bright in, in William Faulkner, though a bit more convoluted in his experiments with reality. Uh, in time, a, a, a skewering of, of a particular view of the South, like the, the whole idea of Southern, the Southern Gothic, kind of comes from the fact that, that the South, is, at least in the way that these writers wrote about it, is a very confused place towards its, its violent history and its ideas of what the past is. So you often hear in the U.S. South, this idea that the Confederate flag and such is a part of some old noble tradition. Um, and it's the the look on your face is the correct look on your face, and and one of the ways the Gothic is often thought to be, if not a nostalgic genre, you know, with its castles and ghosts, as uh, one at very the least. Grappling with the intersection of of modernity and science with the old natural world, and and in in this story, the grandmother felt like a specter to me, like this this bit of the past still haunting the the present. And with her white cotton gloves and her her old world ideas of a gentleman and a lady, and her her very kind of common refrain of well, in my time, you know, she's lamenting the loss of this world. And the story, like it's it's stab at the heart of this deluded and nostalgic South, this idea of glorifying traditions while ignoring the horrors on, upon which those mm-hmm. those traditions grew, the, the, that stab is so deep because the thing that really jumped out to me the second time I read it was the reason they die, the reason they get into trouble is because of her misremembering of the past. Mm-hmm. That turn they take off the road yeah. they're on is because she <laughs> thinks- so true, yeah. They're in the neighborhood where this plantation house used to be. But no, 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 no. This plantation house was not here. It was in a whole different state. It was back in Tennessee. They have turned off the road because she doesn't remember the past. And getting everyone to go along with that is ultimately what leads to their death. And then after the car accident, right in the moment of the car accident, in fact... The reason they have the accident is because she remembers this and kicks over her pet cage that has a cat in it, Mm. which jumps out and causes the accident. She is too embarrassed after the accident to say, to admit admit her mistake. And in fact, she's hoping that she's been hurt by the accident so that once she admits it, she won't get yelled at. She
1: presses an organ to check for injury.
0: And, And that to me was the rub because at that moment, I didn't judge her. I thought... Have I ever been too embarrassed to tell the truth about something? You know, have I ever wished to have been hurt by my own mistake so much that others who also might have hurt might still take pity on me? And I thought, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I have experienced those moments. And then when I thought about the end, where everyone's getting killed and she's yelling for her son yeah, Bailey Boy still into all the woods, based
1: on her misremembering. Yeah,
0: and she know like some part of her might know that even if she can't admit it. I just. I, it, it reminded me of like uh, the magic of George Saunders' Sea Oak mm-hmm. where the grandmother seems so horrible but in a way it, the more you read that story and the more you think about it the more it's love that... and tragedy you feel.
1: Yeah, this is exactly what I was going to say because this story the language, the time the everything about it was so foreign to me that the first time I read it through it was really difficult to grasp exactly what was going on. You know, it's written a lot of the the speech particularly is written in very strong dialect, in a in an accent that doesn't come naturally to me. Um but you're right, yeah, the more you read it, the more you really empathize with this woman who is out of her time and out of her place. But but I don't feel like that you know, I think there is a tendency or I am split at least between yeah, I want to empathize with it. She's out and t- out of time and out of place, but I really dislike it when people talk, you know, say, "Oh, we should forgive that person's attitude because they're a product of their time."
0: Yeah, I think there is a a large gap between empathizing with someone and forgiving them. I think though that one of the the magic tricks of this story is that often the first time you read it, you empathize more with the murderer mm-hmm. than you do with the old lady. Mm-hmm. And I think that is kind of delicious and it also telling.
1: I think I think there absolutely is a huge gap in you know, when when you sit down and think about it. But I think that in so much discourse that I see around race and isms and problematics and, you know, who did what to whom I feel like we, we don't have that nuance in our discussions at all. And, you know, I guess what I... Maybe I need to look else other places other than Twitter for discussions to get nuance, I guess.
0: I think the reason why, on first reading, at least for me, when I kind of identify and like The Misfit more, is because I am ashamed of the grandmother. I am embarrassed mm-hmm. by her. I don't like her. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the genius of what Flannery O'Connor did a lot and what George Saunders does now and what Tamson does in her story is give us characters that we have a difficult time liking, but the stories don't make apologies for them. The stories just give us these people and ask us to find a way to empathize with them and connect with them.
1: Yeah, they they give us those people in enough detail that we can find that eventually. But you do have to work for it sometimes, and yeah. you're rewarded for that work.
0: Yeah, because I think when we we have talked about how the the stories exude confidence, and about the the dialect that is in them, and about their their strict adherence to the way of describing a world that is commiserate with with the people that are living in that world, that attention to detail as we read and read draws us in to feeling like these are people worth paying attention to. And these mm-hmm. bits of ourselves that are shameful or embarrassing or who.
1: And we've all got uh, enough of those, right?
0: Yeah, we, we have enough of those and we have that in us. I think the, the, the danger of reading stories like a good man is hard to find is not taking its questions of morality of its questioning of what it even means to be a good person. Seriously, looking at ourselves for like what bits of us are the grandmother uh and and perhaps do need to be shot even if it is horrible because let me tell you one of my favorite lines in this story as much as i empathize with the grandmother one of my favorite quotes in all of literature perhaps is this she would have been a good woman the misfit said if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life (laughs) that is hideous it is so hideous but that, it, it, yeah, I just, I just love, I just love it because it's, well, there's just many reasons I love it. But I think one, one place I, I, maybe to wrap it up or something, and it is how much I love that line of how hideous you say it is of how though, like you, I, you kind of empathize more with the misfit mm. the first time you read it. And he still kind of stands out as this character that takes action. And so he is to a certain extent, likable. When I was reading this story and when reading Tamsin's story, I kept thinking about sometimes the debate people have about likable and unlikable characters. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel like that debate is only ever about whether this character is too whiny or too passive Mm -hmm. and almost never about is this character embarrassing? Is this character shameful? Does this character sh- like shine a light on humanity that I am uncomfortable with mm. and so don't want to connect with?
1: Yeah, and because we never want to say that, right? I don't want to read about this character because it makes me think about awful things that I've done. By the way, I have never shot a grandmother in a ditch, but I have, <laughs> I have of course done things that I'm ashamed of. And that is in some ways what makes this so hard to read. Yeah, there's probably things in these stories that we've not managed to talk about
0: or stories that we just didn't talk about that you really loved in the recent times.
1: <laughs> Let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at storyological. That is story
0: like the word.
1: Oh, like Flannery O'Connor
0: and logical like Emmas Martini. <laughs>
1: what was that?
0: You can you can follow her on Twitter at egkosh.
1: And you can follow him on Twitter at Kuvols, C-U-V-O-L-S.
0: And of course, for show notes, appropriate gifts, and a chance to subscribe to our lovely newsletter or this podcast, you can always find us on the web at Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening, readers. See you next time. Happy reading. What? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I hear on the mic. Like you're Whitney Houston about to belt out the National Anthem.
1: <laughs> you make me feel that like
0: is, a... That is not the National Anthem.
1: It's, it's my na- National yeah. Anthem.
0: You make me no, feel... You make me <laughs> feel like a natural woman. Woman.
1: Don't, don't do that.